Hello, friends. Welcome back to The Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast where I have conversations with influential minds where we step back and take a big picture view on the topics of nature and humanity. I'm your host, James Perrin, and I don't know about you, but I really can't stand the divisiveness that we see in politics and the media these days. Every day, it's he said, she said, this party versus that party, left versus right, black versus white, right versus wrong. And at first, it's infuriating, and I can see how people get swept up in the anger of it. A lot of people stay in that angry, frustrated stage. But after a while, it can become debilitating, and I can totally understand why so many people become apathetic or switch off to politics or political issues. Here in Australia, we essentially have this two-party system, and let's be honest, they're not really that different from one another. I mean, we've got a choice between an upper-middle-class white guy named Scotty or an upper-middle-class white guy named Albo as a starting point. But even worse than that, rather than having an assembly of independent representatives who work collaboratively to achieve outcomes for the collective, wouldn't that be great? We essentially have this duopoly with so much power that the only way people can get elected in the first place is to align themselves with a party, to pick a side. And then that party makes its decisions from a few at the very top who are influenced by lobbyists and businesses with vested interests. It is no wonder people lose faith in our political system. (sighs) Just going to take a quick breath. (laughs) My guest today is a retiring politician. He's retiring as the mayor of the Byron Shire Council this week on the 30th of April, tomorrow. And perhaps because he's retiring, he speaks freely and openly about the ego of party politics. He shares stories from his career and he shares his perspective on how we can approach the same issues that we all face by stepping back and seeing the bigger picture of us as a collective humanity. He opens up about his personal life, about his experiences watching his wife go through cancer, about how he, his views and approaches to controversial issues have changed over the years, and how he's just tried to achieve the desired outcome regardless of his identity or whether his tribe or party liked him. And I can tell you that the Byron community, or the Byron bubble, as it is sometimes referred to, can be ruthless sometimes. He certainly had his fair share of criticism from both the right for being a greenie and even more so from the left for not being green enough. He himself will tell you how he went from being an environmental activist on the front lines at blockades to, as he calls it, putting on a suit, getting a haircut and joining the political realm. So like any politician, he's been a lightning rod for people's opinions. But one thing I can't fault is that he's gotten up Every day, day after day for over a decade, he's faced criticism, he's faced disasters, community issues, and God forbid the never-ending commentary around potholes, which I did promise him I wouldn't bring up, and I did. But he's he's approached each day with vigor. He's spoken his mind, and he's served to the best that he can, even whilst facing personal crises. Please enjoy this conversation with the outgoing mayor of the Byron Shire Council, Simon Richardson.
straight in there. Okay. Cool. Simon, welcome to the show. Great. Pleasure to be here. Mate, thank you so much for having me here in your office and and it's so nice to be able to just directly reach out to one of our elected (laughs) representatives and just be invited in. So Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. Uh, Anytime. Cool. So the, um, the, the show is called The Overview Effect and the inspiration behind the show is this experience that astronauts have called The Overview Effect. Mm. When they first go up into space, they first look back on Earth from space and they describe this overwhelming sense of connection to our world, to nature and humanity and the beings that inhabit it. It sounds like a, a, an incredibly special experience that they go to and it's a deep and lasting connection that they build with our world even after they come back down to earth and i just really love that concept and i like to start there and ask all of my guests have you had an experience in your life or a moment of time or a series of experiences perhaps that have in a similar way shaped your connection with our world or nature or humanity yeah it's a great one because that particular example of of the astronauts not only did it affect those uh men at the time and obviously now women as well personally but it affected the global consciousness as the world saw itself as a you know yes. one big rock running, running through space um probably had more effect than almost any image you know ever created um or captured personally yeah there's probably two things that i'd say have have certainly shaped my perception of i guess the world around me um one perhaps more internally and one perhaps how i interact with the world first of all is my my wife's um journey with cancer um and subsequent passing mm. just observing the death process if if i put it in those terms uh, as someone had never really had that mm. um uh and certainly so let alone someone you know deeply i I loved and is and is a healthy age generally you know something we'd consider almost an unnatural time of passing so from observing her unbelievable response to it and then you know I guess quite regularly reflecting how would I be you know getting you know getting that news when you just got a little lump and all of a sudden you get that news and your kids are in the waiting room you know what I mean? And, yeah. and you know, you can't drive because, like, from that moment to all the way through um, responding to it, observing other people's response to it, um, the difference between nine months built purely around hope and healing to then, you know, four or five weeks when things went pear-shaped to preparing, yeah. you know, from a palliative point of view. And then also seeing the, in, uh, the industry sounds too um, uncaring, but the the humans that are involved, the doctors, the nurses, the palliative care, um, really made me super conscious of life, you know, and, and therefore hyper-sensitive to um, moments, I guess, within it and transition moments, having two young daughters that we were chaperoning through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's one of those ones that I still don't quite know. I'm, in a couple of weeks, it's going to be two years since she died. Still finding it hard to truly quantify, you know, truly tru- truly be able to, um, desc- I guess, describe those impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, almost 
like knowing that part of me is broken and yet uh, not necessarily being able to pinpoint the exact moment it broke. <laughs> you know, it's so that yeah. that whole process has made me completely see the world very differently. It's the- interesting when we um, when we have those those moments of a, of a loved one because I've had um, very close friends go through a similar battle quite a, when we were all quite young teenagers. Um, and as an observer, my experience was the 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 sad and the emotional roller coaster is one thing of of being in that experience, but as a that almost I guess astronaut or third party observer observing and really understanding that death process, which is something we don't do a lot in modern society. It's very hidden. Mm. It's not talked about, mm. um, and it's it's something that if it, it just seems it just seems like I mean we all know it's a part of life, so it gives you an opportunity to, as you say, reflect on your own life mm. and reflect on your mortality mm. and the mortality of those people around you. Mm. And it, offers a totally different perspective that we're kind of shielded from in day-to-day society. Look, absolutely. And I think most of my reactions during the process, apart from just my relationship to, um, to Jane, was, was how humans dealt with it. You know, so you're almost looking at that from that astronaut point of view, just looking at how we, whether someone would, would stop me on the street. You know, and it's one of those interesting ones that some people who knew what, what was happening couldn't bring it up yes um and then felt guilty that they didn't others were kind of incredibly clumsy about it you mm. know i'd be in the line to get a salad roll and someone be like oh how's jane you know and you're like well <laughs> how long have yeah. you got yeah. you know here i am just trying to get on with my day and you've opened that wound and then 30 seconds later it's like okay see you mate and you sort of left there you know like a blubbering fool yeah. um so and neither are, are wrong responses because everyone's dealing with it. So when you just sit back and observe how people, including yourself, deal with it, is it's it's you can't help but learn by just those observations. The other the other moment which has had a, a massive, profound effect on me was back in the day I used to be an environmental activist. So I used to be, you know, in the forests um, all around Australia and in North America, sort of my you know my full time life for about seven years. Um, and so. It, Things like going into arrestable things, under sitting under, um, chaining yourself to machines and sitting on tripods, etc. Mm. Remember, there was one morning I was uh, on this tripod, so you know, massive. You're probably twenty meters up in the air, sitting on three three big pieces of tree. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, um, poles and uh, across a road, basically trying to stop, you know, the, the vehicles getting through. And so as a result, you have to do it sort of almost last dark, first light before people come and you set up. And, and I was up there. So I'd been up there and watching the sunrise, et cetera, for, you know, for a couple of hours. And then eventually the sort of riot police and the special ops police sort of come just because they have to get a cherry picker. And, you know, first of all, they see you that you're there. They all curse and then they go and get the big boys to come <laughs> and with all the machinery because you're sort of locked on in steel contraptions. But what was interesting is that when I was sitting down, sitting up there looking down, literally like that sort of astronaut looking down on, on what was taking place below me, what, what began, to, began to really hit home 
was was what I was seeing was the similarities. Uh, on the left, there was all you know my friends, all you know all the all the blockaders, um, and really you know a lot of them were wearing just the sort of um, you know the flanny shirts of various colours and yep. you know ripped jeans and you know uh, and then I look across to the right. And the loggers and those who were about to be doing the working were sort of wearing the same sort of thing. Mm. Um, so apart from slight adornment differences, different, different types of hats and maybe different shoes and maybe, you know, some of my mates had feathers in their hair. <laughs> but apart from some of the, you know, the, the little individual bling, as it were, what began to, began to really strike me was just how similar they actually are. These different, you know, these different forces that were literally, you know, in trenches fighting each other and literally fighting each other was quite often quite violent. One of the most important things there was a video camera to capture it. That was we we wouldn't do things without a video camera because it was just too unsafe. Mm. But you know, when you look down, it was like you know, I, I began to just look at and just see both these groups love being outside. Yeah, they love, you know. Uh, you know, being in a forest at the crack of dawn. They're, they're, neither of them are sitting in the, you know, in a in a business uh, office in the city. You know, they all want a secure future for their, you know, for their society. Um, they value trees differently. You know, one one, you know, in a sense, every tree is sacred, and and its its own value is that it exists. And the other is, well, it's a replenishing, you know, resource. Um, that is one of many, and it and it helps the human animal survive amongst that environment. Mm. And so, it really began to, to to strike me that really the the ultimate, the only way for us to solve these problems was to find the links between those two and start to develop them. Because really, over those seven years, I you know I was involved with sort of a lot of successful campaigns up at Jabaluka, which was the uranium one at Kakadu. Um, some around here, um, uh, a place called Timbara, which was a gold mine up at a high altitude, um, uh, mountains near Tenderfield, um, but also lost, you know, some down at the Tarkine in Tasmania and East mm. Gippsland. But what struck me is that really it was just a ever, never-ending cycle. You know, you, if you won that little battle to stop that one forest, you'd gloat yes. and, and get um, lazy and the and the loser whoever was on the losing side would plot vengeance, and then you'd battle again, and the same thing would you know the result may be different occasionally, but you're in this cycle of of contesting, and neither whether it's you know gloating you know and being lazy due to success or resentment due to failure, neither of them are great qualities we want to be harnessing and <laughs> and developing. Yes. So for me, really, ever since those moments, is what transitioned me from. You know, an environmental activist who was very much focused on just saying no to something. You know, no to chopping that tree, no to having that mine. And I and I still honour those who are down that path. But I thought, no, I, I need to find a way where we can say yes to things and bring people together because that is the only way to truly solve these issues and move us forward. And so, really, from that moment, literally of looking down at these two supposedly opposing but still quite similar tribes, as it were made me realise that uh, a bit like the astronaut realising that everyone's on that piece of rock floating through space and yeah. we're all in it together, um, looking down I began to realise, hey, all of these people have far more similarities and if we can find a way to give everyone what they want, then we again can move forward together. Yeah. Wow. 
And is that what those realizations or that, that realization in particular after your environmental activism, is that what led you into wanting to go into politics? And, uh, and, and I, I want to explore that with you because I hear what you're saying and I agree with you. But I think in many ways, my observation from just a, a member of the public around politics is that it is becoming, is divisive and is becoming more and more divisive in that sense. It seems like these days you need to pick a side, left or right, right versus wrong, this person versus that person. And I guess coming into the fray with that mindset, is that what you found and experienced as well? Oh, look, absolutely. That's why I'm getting out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, the, the way I got into that really was about, uh, even before then, I'd, I'd already sort of made conscious internal decisions that I wanted to be of service in some way. I wanted mm. to be part of, solu- I wanted to be, you know, I had certain skills, but I didn't want to just work in advertising or something, you know. I wanted to actually do something that, that I could say is good for, for the planet. And initially I wanted to, you know, go, I looked at on a global level, I was actually studying at Georgetown University in Washington, DC to do school of foreign service. So for me, it was like, you had to, you had to change things almost on a global UN type level. Um, I then, as I sort of changed when I was in the forest, I began to then think, okay, I need to up the whole thing globally, act locally. And so when it's all said and done, strength, strengths I had weren't great in the forest. I wasn't a great climber. You know, I wasn't. A, I could tell some horrendous stories of uh, my incompetence, you know, trying to climb a tree, and 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 really, the, the skills I had was generally with media and with policy development, et cetera, et cetera. So I was always this little hippie kid who, you know, when the when the media came, I'd tie my dreadies back and put a little old dusty jacket on so I could try to look somehow presentable. Yes. And well, you'd, and you'd get wheeled out by the environment. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. This is the guy exactly. That's for he, us. Sure, he still looks. You know, for us, he's a bit straight. For you, he still looks a bit. Uh, nuts, but so then I began to realise really that again, you know, having that uniform in a sense, you know, having the dreadies and having all that stuff, it was actually getting in the way of me influencing people. I mean, apart from the fact you get refused service in some places, but but and so then I began to realise, well, it's only ego that I'm keeping it. Then, like, if I truly, if I truly want to protect that forest, if I truly want to do the things I've just said about bringing people together. And I know, you know, looking a certain way or acting in a certain area, albeit being comfortable because you're in your own, with, you, with your own cheer squad, actually made me less effective. Well, then it's only ego to stay there. Mm. And a bit like, you know, uh, so therefore, if, if I truly believe I should do whatever it takes, well, then put on a suit and cut your hair, mate. That's, that's, they're, they're peripheral, superficial barriers. Um, and so that's where I began to realise really the skill set I had were more would be more advantageous in that sort of realm. Um, so that's where initially I went in there again to try and make that sort of difference. But again, as that as my years as mayor started to crystallise, that understanding that really I, I kept getting in trouble with my own party, on, with my own cheer squad, because I kept talking to the other side, mm. you know, or, or they, what they would perceive as the other side. And for me, I'd just say, look, I don't care the colour of the flag. I care about the direction it's blowing. If it's blowing forward, you know, if it's blowing in a way that uh, moves us forward, well, then I'll back it. If it's limp or blowing backwards, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll resist it. And so, 
you know, so therefore, if if a politician who was a nat, you know a national was doing something that was benefiting my community, well, then I'd thank them for it. Mm. You know, yeah. and others would say, "Oh, you can't say that. You're giving him a, a free leg up." And it's like <laughs> this bigger picture. And so when I was starting to look, you know, in national politics, and I'd already said no a couple of times to going into state politics, and I had. You know, I had the head of the Greens then, Richard Di Natale, flew up and said, you know, come on, if you run this lower house seat, we think it's winnable, we'll give everything to it. You know, on one hand, it was incredibly flattering because all my life I'd really, you know, the idea that I could be sitting 40 metres away from the Prime Minister in Parliament, you know, is, is, is quite alluring for someone who's been intoxicated with politics all his life. But then I also just thought, you know, if I, if all I do, especially being a Green where the chance of actually, you know, having a ministry or, you know, at best you might have a balance of power if you're lucky. Otherwise, you know, you sit on a committee. If 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 all I did was change a climate change target from 24% to 25%, whatever, it'd, you know, someone has to. But I didn't. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. And 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 I also kept looking at really good people. And, and idiots on all the parties, <laughs> you know, who were getting in the way. And it's like, you know, really good people, it's like they actually, if you're in business or you were trying, you're outside of politics and you were saying, okay, who are the people we need to get into the table and activate to get this outcome? You'd get whoever the best people were, you'd bring them together, you'd sort of give them whatever they need to feel part of a team and then collectively you'd, you'd achieve it. Well, mm. that's not how politics works. Yes. You know, you want to do something about climate change. There's some people in the, in the libs who should be in that table. They're, they're red hot thinkers and they've got good hearts and there's people in the Nats and there's people in the Greens. But that's not thought of that. It's like, well, we, we will sit around that table, but we'll be enemies. And so publicly I'll attack you and you'll attack me. And, and because I'm attacking you, we won't get what we need to get. We'll get sort of half what we get. Mm. And, and so for me, I just thought, we haven't got enough time for that. And so I want to get out of that adversarial world, which is perpetuated by media who crave it. And I want to get surround myself with people like the, the first description who can sit around a table, f- look for a solution and work together and get it done um, really a- outside of politics. Mm. But so you've described beautifully, I think, what we're seeing and continue to see in politics and uh, this this um, inability to acknowledge when you may deep down agree with something the other side is saying. For whatever, why why does that exist? Why why are we in a place where, um, you know, we get we identify as being on a political spectrum or aligning with a political party, and we are unable to either bring the other side to the table or even acknowledge when they do something right? It seems very. Um, it seems like it just gets in the way of any progress. It does, and I think it, it perhaps starts historically. Of the two major parties, there's not a great deal of incentive to change because you know you're going to be in power every 10 years or so. Mm. I mean, do you know what I mean? You, you would still look at yourself as a two-horse race that as long as I smack into the opposition uh, or the other side, electoral cycles being what they are, you know, they'll have their time, we'll have their time. So both of the major parties actually benefit from that system really mm. as far as being in power, not necessarily with the decisions they make. And therefore, the smaller parties like Greens find themselves sort of yapping at the heels of the two, you know, sort mm. of bullies at each other and because they think also that's the only way to get attention. And so there's also – so I guess there's, an, a, there's a, a historical belief of, look, you just – you need to be different. 
you need an opposition needs needs to say opposing things all the time uh you need to keep separating yourself from the other view um the easiest way to do that is to say your view's wrong um and then you've got a media increasingly now often not by its own fault because they've stripped back how many journalists there are and how much time who kind of just live off that. So they'll yeah. interview the first person and then they'll say, you know, person number two, what do you think of that? And, you know, in, in 20 seconds or less. So, so in a way, um, there's, a, there's a system that's set up for it. And lastly, I wonder about the, sh- the society's response to it. On one hand, we know society hates it. Mm. But on the other, on the other side, I wonder how much they would see someone trying to be conciliatory as weak. And this is that sort of thing. When you speak angrily and forcefully, you're you're demanding someone sort of finds finds a camp either way. When you're trying to sort of be more honourable, political parties are scared that that will 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 turn them people will call them wishy-washy or or they won't get the same media attention because they're that they're largely agreeing with the first side so why bother sharing their point of views so it's mm. so it's a really tricky one and i've actually had a lot of internal conversations with greens about trying to change that like i believe the community will actually respect a group who can occasionally say they're sorry and they got yeah. it wrong um, but also occasionally say you know what i i largely agree with what you're saying you know, and but, but certainly, just cutting out the nastiness, yeah, cutting out the the sarcasm. I don't think I think most people aren't overly, but people are too political parties are too scared because the tradition of attacking each other is so deep. Yes, yes, and I think, and you're right. It it definitely plays out first and foremost in the political system. But I think you're right. There's a historical precedent in broader society as well. I mean, you look at business, and it's like I work for this company therefore i'm against all of those sales reps over there because we're in competition yeah and that that person if you met them and didn't know who they worked for you'd probably be great mates with them but knowing that they're in competition with you 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 strike up this competitive atmosphere i mean and we see it with even things like sports teams you yeah. pick a side and you're yeah. loyal to that side yes. no matter what and i'm i'm, I'm guilty <laughs> and it's like you know what i i had a, a revelation a few years ago where i kind of watched the australian cricket team and i went you know what these guys are a bunch of mm wankers quite mm. frankly mm. um but uh so so we're brought up in that environment of like pick a side and stick with it mm. as opposed to really seeing that that bigger picture mm. and i guess you described mm. in your experience so i'm, I'm really interested but just, I wanna... but just with that if i could yeah the, uh, the challenge going back to when i was saying how finding the diff- finding the similarity between those two things i think there's still an absolute sweet spot for any party or any group of politicians across parties to actually focus on that unifying aspect of us and things like connecting with us through our values not our opinions or our views so for example the the boat people debate you know that was certainly hotter a few years ago i used to speak quite strongly you know to Sarah Hansen Young's group, you know, and it's like, what you're saying to people is that they're heartless and cruel and don't care about people. Mm. Now, who wants to hear that? Does anyone really want someone to describe them as that? Does anyone, you know, if you walk up to someone with a clenched fist and saying you're an idiot, well, your natural human reactions to sit backwards and defend yourself. If instead of just saying you don't care about those people, if you don't support 
Because then, because again, a parent of mine might say, "No, I care about them. I just think they should have should have a, a, an orderly queue." You know, and regardless of where you stand in that position, for me, the bit that wasn't being explored was was our shared values. We all believe in a fair go. Mm. We all believe in in understanding that people want a roof over their head, people want a job. So therefore, some lo- some Australians are scared of losing their job and that's been flared. Mm. But also, someone who's on that boat wants to have a job for their kids. And so that nuance of actually exploring that and saying, okay, we all agree on this. So how, what's the best way of getting us through it? Then all of a sudden, you actually have a dialogue. Mm. You know, climate change in the Adani, I was again saying to Richard Di Natale, when we, the Greens used to always just attack and say, it's wrecking the reef. You know, and there's tourism jobs. And it's like, okay, but if instead we'd said, t- t- we're not anti-Adani, we're for sustainable jobs mm. for people in the Galilee, and we actually said to them, you know what, for 100 years, you and your, you know, ge- the generations of your families have lived here and you have done what we have asked you to do. You know, you've dug our hole. You've, you've, you've mined for our, our needs. You've actually worked in tough jobs you know your life expectancy is not as high it's unhealthy sort of work you've done it honorably mm. you've done it you know and you've done exactly what we've asked and thank you and so now to reward you we are going to transition you into help your kids into healthier jobs so we are going to pour all you know the new sustainability the new energy you know um, systems and you guys are going to reap the, the benefit that's a completely different story yes to you're destroying the planet you're wrecking the reef because what it's saying is tourist jobs are more important than yours and you and your family's work is lacking value and, and honour. And these sorts of words, I think, or, or value systems, we don't acknowledge enough mm. as ways to bring people together. Totally. Oh, you're coming from, in that space, you're coming from a very humanistic point of view and a a very um, cooperative point of view. And it, it what... I'm reminded of when I hear you say things like that is some of the great leaders historically in our time in the in the most recent parts of history have come from that point of view as well you know um Mother Teresa I think famously said I won't ever attend an anti-war rally I'll go to a pro-peace rally Mm. you know I think Gandhi Mm. said we want the British to leave and we want them to leave as friends Mm. you know so coming from that Mm. really humanistic cooperative Mm. point Mm. of view is in stark contrast to our very competitive society whether that's natural or you know forced upon us by i guess the structural system that we operate in um and i i love where you're coming from in that and i just want to kind of come back to your experience because i think i'm I'm hearing that you perhaps used to live in that world when you were very much down that activist route Mm, absolutely and so how did you bridge that gap and was there a large chunk of ego swallowing and um, self-reflection? Because I think that's, that's the bit where people might get stuck and we, we get stuck sometimes is going, well, hang on, how do I acknowledge when I've spent my whole life painting my identity as being on this side, how do I actually acknowledge that there might be some truth or humanity in the other side? Yeah, look, I think um, acknowledging egos is absolutely part of it. Um, I think it was also purely, it was also functional. Like, as I said earlier, for me, it was about, do I actually want outcomes? Like, you know, it's a bit like, um, you know, what's the best way to truly get that outcome so you don't have to keep trying to fight it again in a way that works? 
And so I think that sort of way of bridging people together is slower. And those on either side who profit or do well because of friction will resist. But the vast bulk of of all of us want ultimately some basic things. You know, mm. they want security of them, them and their family. They want to feel that they are doing good. You know, no one likes to think that they're destroying the planet, destroying, yeah. you know. Um, and so really when you strip it back, for me it's like, okay, if I believe that, well then I either do it or I stop talking about it, mm. you know. And so so those sorts of things of, of actually – and then as soon as you open yourself to – you know, trying to, you know, to, to find links, they become easier. I mean, at the same time, if you're also kind of very angry with the world, it's hard to make friends, if you yes, know what I mean. Yes. So there is still just a basic <laughs> a willingness and openness to be able to, ha- to have a yak with someone yeah. and just take them on face value. And you, when you're doing that, rather than saying, oh, that person's a logger or that person's got a Zegna suit or whatever, as soon as you start creating those barriers for yourself, you, you can't bridge them, you mm. know, if you just drop it well then you're half a chance to actually have a conversation see you know so it it does begin on that very rudimentary human level of just can you engage with people um who are in a a different camp and i still struggle with it i mean i'm still not an i'm not necessarily a natural networker in a group to be able to you know flounce through and and and, you know (laughs) and uh connect with everybody but Bottom line is, for me, I just see it more functional. The only way we are truly going to be sustainable and, uh, you know, honourable as a society is by getting on with each other. Mm. That simple. So if, yeah. if, uh, if you then base everything on the competitive model rather than the cooperative model, we will never get to that end. Totally. And, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, you, you were a teacher, right, as mm-hmm. well? Yeah. I suspect that your experience in being a teacher dealing with squabbling bratty children has translated well to politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, also, I mean, for a couple of things, first of all, on, a, on just a very functional point of view, the great thing about being a teacher is that you have to compartmentalise. Like as a high school teacher, you know, in one day you might say, okay, nine o'clock, I'm walking into a class of 28 year eight kids um, and I've got 45 minutes, I've got to achieve these couple of outcomes, you mm. know, and then... I'm going to have a five-minute break. I'm going to walk across the corridor. I'm going to walk into a group of 10-year, 12 kids. And, you know, that person's just broken up with that person. This person's living out of home. And I've got to have 45 minutes to achieve that outcome. And then I've got to do that eight times a day. Mm. You know, so the ability to actually go in, get an outcome you need, um, relate to different demographics in that sense, even within the the youth set, Mm. um, and compartmentalise whatever happens in that 45 minutes, go out and take a breath and go into the next one. So on a very practical level, that's why I think a lot of teachers do quite well in in other realms because of that training. The other thing too is that it ultimately, a bit like knowing everyone's the same, I've taught at very elite grammar schools, I've taught, you know, Steiner schools, I've taught in rich govy schools, I've taught in poor Gavi schools, when you close the door and you've got those kids, they are remarkably the same. Mm. You know, some have got higher expectations of themselves or a higher belief in themselves. But bottom line is they laugh at the same things, they're challenged by the same things, they're exhilarated by the same things. So it actually, again, just reconfirms that 
in essence, we're all pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. We want the same thing in the end. Totally. And so I want to I want to explore a little bit. So you, you, you talked about how you decided not to enter state politics for those reasons mm. that we talked about, the, the nature of the beast. But then you went into becoming a councillor and then mayor. And the kind of the, the role of council or councils that they can play as opposed to our federal and state governments, you know, I think in, especially in the climate change and environmental issues are a good example because um, councils, I think, deal with are at the, the coalface, the brunt of a lot of these environmental issues, things mm. like, I mean, even recently with beach erosion and yep. sea level rise and on a, on a rainy day and high tide, we mm. have you know, some flooding of low-lying roads in the, in the region, um, uh, fires, all these sorts of things, it seems like councils either have the ability or have just by sheer nature of need, while, while there's squabbling and debate and um, misalignment going on between state and federal and global politics, councils just seem to have that ability to just kind of crack on with, with things. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, because in, and that's the case globally, you know, I was lucky enough to speak a few times at the Paris Climate Conference um, and a few other sort of um, conferences of that sort of ilk. And one of the things that comes out very clearly globally is that it's the cities, um, the regions and the shires that are leading the world. Mm. Um, then you get into the states. So again, if you look at something like America, um, it's certain areas in California. It's then California as a state, you know, uh, and a few other states are miles ahead of the country, mm. um, you know, across Europe, it's the same. The amount of, uh, I mean, their national uh, actors are now well and truly on board, but really they came from regional responses. Um, uh, cities, uh, again, even in Australia, really the biggest, uh, the, the biggest leaders are the city of Melbourne, city of Sydney, you know, um, city of Adelaide. Mm. Um, they're the ones that have the have the targets, which then do, do the do the wider cooperative investment with the universities, et cetera, et cetera. Then the states pick it up. Uh, and in our case, the feds plot along, uh, in, you know, trying to resist. But so you're right. The problem, of course, in Australia is that we are, as far as levels of government, we have the least amount of influence, the least uh, financial ability and the, and the least amount of regulatory or legislative ability mm. to get things done. Um, but you're right, we are also the closest to the community and the community see us as that. And so in a way, you're therefore far more responsive to a community value um, than perhaps those in state and feds. But it's, that, that's the tension is that you've got this groundswell, but even below us, there's the community groups, you know, and again, you look at whether the Hepburn, um, you know, uh, energy uh, uh, wind farms to ANOVA and some of the uh, community-owned uh, renewable energy uh, sector. So communities of, are often ahead of their local councils who are ahead of their states or ahead of their state country. Yes. So it certainly is from below uh, to uh, above. Yeah, I think it speaks to me of the, um, the need for appropriately sized communities or us to be thinking in appropriately sized communities um, my friend, one of the previous guests on the show, Helen and Allberg Hodge, obviously mm. is a huge advocate for localization and this idea of thinking locally because because you know the the states, the federal governments, and the when you think on such a broad scale, it's hard to achieve any agreement or traction. but when you 
when you are this close to your community and you're able to literally just have a conversation with the the mm. representative of the the local political community you build that more humanistic and personal connection you build those relationships you build that cooperative mindset and then you have the ability to just kind of get on with things mm. Mm. and you build resilience a, a true resilience a resilience is not dependent on one act of parliament or, in a sense, the white knight coming, you know, to save you if there's a disaster. Yes. It's that resilience that when shit hits the fan or the light goes off or the water stops flowing or mm. whatever, the community has a capacity to feed itself, look after itself and, and get through it. We're a long way away from that yeah. still, but that's why Helena's work is so important because it's constantly showing us examples and often it is through farmers' markets and that sort of stuff initially. You know, when you know your farmer and you can support them, they, they, you know, it gives them more incentive to keep, you know, that land being productive. Um, you begin to be in touch with your seasons, you know, and, and what actually is happening in your environment around you. And, and again, I mean, for example, one of the floods that happened here a few years ago, traditionally supermarkets used to have quite a significant storage capacity. So the trucks would come weekly. Mm. Now they make the supermarket, you know, the back of house, so to speak, tiny, and the trucks come daily. Yes. Now, of course, you've, of course, you've got your emission, you know, realities of trucks going on the highway every day. But what we what we saw a few years ago in I think uh, 2017 when we had floods, when the Pacific Highway was stopped, the supermarkets here ran out of food in two days. In Mullumbimby, the IGA. You know, they had to, they opened it and they actually had the door closed and the owner would let p- people in individually mm. to come in get some things and pay in cash because you know the the, the the stock was was um, you know hard to replenish they didn't want you know hoarding yep. um, they had power out but it really showed my god if that if that Pacific Highway was cut for another three or four days there would not have been food in Byron Shire yeah wow. Wow. And and I think even, so we've had floods, we've had fires, and we've had now this pandemic where I guess we've had to have a national or global response, but it still, I think, is crystallizing in our minds the need for that local community resilience. Mm. Uh, and, and if, uh, being an optimist, um, I hope that people's thinking is going in that direction after all of these events we've had over the last 18, 24 months. We've seen massive uptake in things like farmers markets and gardening i mean i mm. remember when the pandemic first hit you couldn't buy any seeds yeah. or seedlings <laughs> it was great yeah. um, did you hoard a few uh we, do you know what we've been hoarding for a long time <laughs> oh, right. seeds and seedlings we were gutted that the um libraries closed because yeah. there's the seed bank at the libraries yeah. that we were using all the time but they're now open again uh but it's it's, it's re- it was really great to see people turn to those sorts of things yeah. so i think that the more and more that we are working at that local community level, yeah. the more improvement and positive impact we're going to see. Yeah. Oh, look, absolutely. And, and um, I was giving a presentation the other week on a, a, a national Zoom conference about our renewable energy and our climate change responses. And, and, I, and I was quite honest. I said initially for the first few years, there was a bit of ego involved. It was like, you know, why is the city of Sydney doing it? Why can't we do it? You know, why can't we have that five megawatt solar farm, which incidentally we will be getting shortly. <laughs> But but a lot of it was sort of almost, almost not. I wouldn't say ideological, but it was sort of like we just want to be part of. We want to be doing our bit as global players. You know, if if we've got the capacity, we should we should be doing it. The last twelve months, but then I, but then because it's so slow 
in local council to, to try to do that, I'd actually started to think, oh, is it easier just really to support a, a, a private company to a five megawatt solar farm and we just take their power? Is that mm. is that easier? You know, is that is that more efficient? Are we just not set up to do that sort of stuff? But what these last couple of years have really brought out to me was that, no, the reason why we need to have that solar farm here and not all just put our money together and have one massive one over the range that we all connect with a 500 kilometre long power um, line is because if that fails, we're all stuffed. Whereas, again, even from an energy point of view, if we have that five megawatt and then potentially have five of them, we, you know, as as years go on, we can we can have the battery storage to connect to it, and then if storms happen, we as a community can turn the light on, yeah, you know, or at least keep our food cold or whatever it is. It's so, so the more we enhance locally, um, how we travel, how we work, how we eat, you know, how we power ourselves and keep our you know keep our houses intact, the more truly resilient we're going to be. Yeah. yeah. 100%. And those community connections as well, knowing who your farmer is, but also knowing who your local, you know, disaster relief kind of coordinator is. And, and this is what the work of groups like Resilient Byron are yep. doing. Um, I, I'm mindful of time, but I do want to ask you a couple of quick personal yep. things. So you are retiring this yes. year. You were supposed to retire yeah. last year. Yes. I thought uh, I was I, I was like a member of the mafia where I'd said, okay, I'm leaving and then I got a tap on the shoulder. You know, no one leaves yeah. the family. <laughs> but you promised. It's, you like, it's like Hotel California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So look I'm um yeah, look I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to explore other things. Um so yeah, look at some point over the next few months, I think I'm not even too sure I'll get to September. I'm just really keen to um, uh, again work on solutions. So, and outside of, of that political realm, as much as I love this gig, and you know, I'll be I'll be sort of long yearning for some of the the good bits of it. I just want to more and more sit with people who are, you know, powerful people, positive people, inspired and skilled, mm. and get shit done. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you know what that looks like? Do you have any plans? <laughs> no, yet? no. Have you got a job for me? No. Look, um, look. I don't know. I guess you know. I've been a, a, a solo parent uh, of two kids. You know, it's funny because my wife and I had always planned that my next gig was going to be you know that sort of next level job. You know, with with um, appropriate you know uh, pay packet and potentially travel and a lot of hours that comes along with it. Obviously, those you know, my priority of my kids. So, you know, and so that's sort of perhaps closed some options. But look, as I said, I just want to, I just want to work on solutions. Um, I've already had some little chats to different people. I, I've just got to have faith that there's stuff out there, that the skills that I bring to the table, there's people out there that see the benefit of that and they and they chat to me. Um, so what, what it looks like, I don't know, but yeah. um, I'm excited by it. Yeah, awesome. No, that sounds great. Um, well, I just want to say, I'd love, this has been a great chat and I could go all day, but I don't want to take up all your time. But I just want to say thank you for sharing your time and your perspectives. But on a broader sense, Simon, as someone who has spent the last eight years as mayor and 12 years on the council, mm-hmm. and yeah. I just want to say someone who's kind of gotten up day after day, faced <laughs> envir- like sea level rise, bushfires, housing crises, tourism impacts 
pothole debates. Mm. <laughs> you promise. <laughs> I promise I wouldn't bring that up. Um, you know, but relentless mm. challenges mm. Um, and also, you know, massive personal change. Mm. Um, day after day, getting up with enthusiasm and vigor and in service to community, I really genuinely want to say thank you. Oh, thank you. It's um, yeah, it is. It is a gig that uh, it just doesn't stop. You know, <laughs> it's it's a wild ride. Um, but yeah, look, it's one. Um, I, I wouldn't have. I mean, I've loved. I've loved it immensely. But uh, it also takes its toll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I thank you. No, it's it's been a pleasure. So um, thank you, thank you very much. I can't wait to see what your next steps are. Mm. No doubt, you will continue to have great influence within this community. Cheers. Thanks, Cheers, James. mate. Pleasure. Awesome. 45 on the dot. Great. <laughs> that was great. I mean, I had a lot of questions. Yeah, sorry. I'm going to do this. No, that's, that's what I want. I like it.